out two helpful resources I used for this sermon. Uh, one is uh, this book that I've talked about a couple times in the last couple of weeks, Paul Miller's A Loving Life. If you're wondering what you might want to read this summer, I would suggest this is a great place to start. It's a lovely work. And a second is a sermon by a pastor named Brian Habig, who uh, you may remember his name because I've borrowed things from him in the past. So they were both very helpful. All right, so here we are in Ruth 4. And big picture for those of you that may just be joining us or you've forgotten. And it's possible you've forgotten. It's just been like suffering and death and blood and loss and badness. And here we are at the end. You're thinking, what's this whole semester been all about? And, and the clue is in the title for the whole series this semester. Uh, Deliverance in the Darkness, right? That's the title for the semester. God, Death, and Love. And if you've been with us, then the, the question for the semester is this. What brings deliverance in the darkness? Because this whole period of the scripture, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, is categorized by darkness. You see that really in the period of the Judges. These cycles of suffering as the people give themselves to idolatry and suffer the consequences. And there's uh, moral degradation. And by that I mean there's awful violence uh, that happens and all kinds of suffering that takes place. And you sort of see that at the big picture level, the macro level in Judges. But here in Ruth, we see it on the micro level, ground level, in the life of a family. And so what I want to do real quickly is take you through Ruth, this four-act play, and summarize where we've been so you figure out where we are today. And uh, for some of you that haven't been with us, you'll find this helpful. And if you, haven't been, if you have been with us, I think you'll still find it helpful. So our story starts during the time of the Judges. It's a dark period with this family of Elimelech. Uh, and Naomi. They've got two boys, and uh, there's a famine in the land. Most likely this is a result of God's cursing all the people for their unfaithfulness. And Elimelech is probably, the text doesn't tell us all the details, faced with a number of very difficult choices, like liquidating his assets or selling himself into slavery. Uh, And at some point he decides it is best for us to hightail it out of here. And so they move to Moab. In Moab, uh, the family gains uh, two daughter-in-laws, uh, Malon and Chilion, the sons, uh, pick up Moabite wives, Orpah and, and Ruth. But uh, over a period of time, father, son, and son all die. So by the middle of chapter 1, uh, it's just Naomi and her daughters. And uh, Naomi hears that uh, God has revisited Israel. There's food, and so she begins to return to uh, Bethlehem, the place where she came from. Orpah makes a very practical utilitarian decision and hightails it back with tears, but makes more sense for her to be in Moab. But Ruth shows stubborn, stick-with-you, sacrificial love and says, I, w- I will not leave you. Stop, stop trying to talk me into leaving you. And so uh, when Naomi returns to Bethlehem, uh, the townspeople who haven't seen her for years are like, hey, it's Naomi. And she says, do not call me Naomi because her name means pleasant. Call me Mara which means bitterness, because I left here full and I return empty. Uh, chapter 2 begins with, uh, or scene 2 begins with Ruth. Perhaps Ruth has the right to think, am I nothing? You come back empty? You, you got me, and I'm something. Um, but there's no bitterness in Ruth. What there is is deep love and courage and initiative And caring for her mother-in-law, she moves out in great faith and courage and looks for work in a land where she does not belong. She's an outsider. Trusting God, she goes out and looks for work, and she comes under God's care in the person of Boaz, who, uh, being a man of character, provides for their family, protects her. And so chapter 2, or scene 2, if you will, 
closes sort of with a, a general sense of contentment. They are fed, and they have reason for hope. Uh, curtain opens on scene three, and, and Naomi now, uh, somewhat hopeful, hatches a daring scheme. And, and here's where, if you're reading the story and you're with us, and if you haven't, you should go back and read it. Uh, the, 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 the film moves from like G or PG to PG-13. The scheme's a little risque, a little risky, too. Uh, she basically charges Ruth to approach Boaz in a semi-vulnerable position at the end of the day when he's tired after a good day's work, after he's eaten and drank a little bit. Not, he's not hammered. He's just really happy and, uh, and well-rested. I mean, he wakes up at midnight, so he's not hammered. And he's in his right mind when he speaks, so he's not hammered. But he is uh, somewhat vulnerable. And, uh, and the scheme is to propose marriage. Very risky, very courageous. And uh, because Ruth is a person of character, and because Boaz is a person of character, and because God works, nothing terrible happens. Because all kinds of terrible things could have happened in this scenario. She could have been assaulted on the way there. This is the period of the judges. Terrible things happen. Uh, he could have misunderstood her intentions. This could have ended terribly in like four or five different ways. Instead, this crazy scheme works. And, uh, and uh, not only does she propose, but Boaz gratefully receives this as, as a gift of mercy on her, on her, on her behalf. And so chapter 3 closed with uh, Ruth returning home and giving the report to her mother-in-law. And uh, Naomi says in chapter 3.18, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. The man will not rest, but will settle, settle the matter today. And what that means is uh, that Ruth and Naomi had to wait uh, only a day, whereas we've had to wait a week to figure out how this actually turns out. So let's figure out how this turns out. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. If you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take the right, take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off a sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at that place and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem. 
And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Amenadab, and Amenadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, and Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like. Good Father, I thank you uh, for this text. And at the end of the semester, and at the end of the week, and in the midst of our busyness, and our stress, and our tiredness, we pray you would grant us sharp minds to understand what well, might be a really hard text, but well, it's also a really wonderful text. Help us to see your great love here, Lord Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, you may know that I'm a really big sports fan, that the bigness uh, means it crosses over all number of sports. I'm a fan of basketball, football, baseball, uh, a little bit of hockey during playoff seasons, track and field, and uh, it also transgresses like geographical boundaries. Pittsburghers tend to only care about Pittsburgh sports. I care like everything. Uh, but there are some liabilities to being a sports fan. Uh, one of them is painful losses, and I suffered one of the worst painful losses ever uh, recently. Um, but there are a few other things about being a sports fan that bug me. One of them is the kind of dramatic overstatement that athletes do, especially with an upset. The, the typical, we shocked the world. And uh, my first thought is, no, you didn't, actually. The world does not care. Like, just speaking, the world does not care about your game. I care, I watch, but the world doesn't care. A little perspective is, in, is important here. Uh, another, though, pet peeve, uh, which is close to this, is just sort of the misuse of terms. You hear this especially during playoffs and uh, Olympics. And it's the idea of the redemption story. We lost a game we were supposed to, or I didn't perform my best last time. But this time I'm going to redeem myself. They'll literally use, in fact, if you like type up Olympics and redemption, you'll find like dozens of articles where some athlete uses that very phrase. And, uh, and here I want to say, as one has said before, you keep using that word. I do not think that word means what you think it means. Um, redemption is a very important word. It's one we can't afford to cheapen. And uh, it shows up everywhere in chapter 4 here, and it shows up everywhere in the Bible and uh, it, it is often, often misunderstood. And uh, if you're around Christianity, it's a word we hear all the time. But that doesn't mean we understand it very well. And uh, if we're thinking that redemption is something that we can do, that we can fix in our own failure, we, we've got it wrong. That's not what it means. In Scripture, redemption is incredibly costly, And there's usually nothing less than life itself on the line. Uh, Life or freedom. And that's what we find here. We have two women hanging on by a thread, trying to escape the cycle of death. And their hope is in a redeemer. That's what they're looking for. Someone to come and save me. They want and need a redeemer. 
So that's what we're looking at today, a little bit about the nature of redemption as we see it in this chapter. And we're going to see that full life comes by redemption through another's love and loss. So uh, as we look at redemption in this story, we're really going to see three aspects of it. Some of them you will like, some of them you'll be troubled by. But uh, I think in the end, we'll, we'll all see that they're really good. Uh, we'll look at its legal nature, uh, its loving nature, and its life-giving nature. So uh, the legal aspects, the loving aspects, and how it gives life. So let's start where the text starts, in the courtroom. This is a perhaps weird uh, transition for you, students. And also, it's weird in the text. One minute you're in this strange PG-13 moment, off in the fields with this lady proposing marriage. The next day you're in court. And, and the court here looks a little different than ours, but this is what's happening in verses 1 and 2. You have all the things present. Uh, the gate, which was set up for these kind of public meetings. Uh, the Redeemer, which is the other party in this case. They're all invited to sit down. That's very sort of official language. Ten elders gathered as witnesses, and others come and gather around as witnesses. We have all the parties in the right place with witnesses. This is a court. And in verse thir- 3 and 4 and 5, the, the case is presented. And uh, Boaz speaks and basically just says to the other individual here, he's really not named. The, the language here is really interesting. He says, uh, turn aside, my friend. And no one knows how to translate this. Uh, some translations actually say Mr. So-and-so. Um, we're going to call him Mr. No-Face. Uh, Mr. Faceless Nameless. Let's call him Mr. Faceless Nameless. Uh, or Nameless Faceless. Anyway, because that's pretty close to what the text seems to be implying about this person, actually. Um, and he says in verse 3, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling her parcel of land that belongs to her relative Elimelech. And uh, what's likely happened is that before Elimelech had to hightail it to Moab with his family, that he had probably been forced to liquidate his land. He probably also considered selling himself into slavery, but decided to leave before that. Now, this is not supposed to happen in Israel. It's not. God gives his people the land, and it's supposed to be held by families in perpetuity. Um, they're supposed to keep the land because the land is vital for every family and individual's survival in an agricultural setting. But what happens when a family gets underwater, goes bankrupt, can't pay the bills, have a bad year in crops, blight comes, uh, as happens in Judges, <laughs> terrorizing hordes of foreigners, the Midianites, come down and eat and take everything like locusts and then run off. What happens? What do you do? And uh, in this case, they, they sell their land, they liquidate it. But there's a whole chapter in the Bible, in Leviticus 25, that, that prescribes what's supposed to happen to help a family keep its land. And in a case like this, a near family member, a near family member can be the family's redeemer. Uh, and what they can do is step in and buy the land, pay off the rent, pay off the debt, any number of things. But they redeem the family in regard to its land so the family keeps its land. The, the redemption here is not a sacrifice. It's a payment that, uh, that helps the family keep their land. They, in effect, rescue the people from their plight. And so that's the case law behind what's going on here. It happened very often. And uh, Boaz is telling this guy, Naomi's here. Her land's over there in that guy's possession. 
it's our responsibility to redeem this land. And you're the first one that's responsible. And uh, the guy here, Mr. Nameless Faceless, is willing to do so. He's willing to do so. But there's more to this case. And Boaz opens his mouth in verse 5 and says, Of course, when you buy the land, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, widow of the dead. Not only was land supposed to stay in the family, families were supposed to stay together. Families were supposed to stay together. And I know a lot of you aren't used to families staying together. And you'll actually probably spend the next 20 or 30 years of your life wrestling with whether or not that's okay, that it hasn't. Um, But there are lots of studies that tell us broken families and divorce has lifelong implications and repercussions on us as individuals and certainly very damaging effects on us as a culture. And so God, through his law, fought really hard to keep families together. And, you know, everywhere in the world but here, family is more important than individual. Only here is individual more important than family. We're the weird ones in this. So uh, also in God's law, there's a prescription for what happens. This is going to be weird for a lot of you. No, it's going to be weird for every single one of you. There's a prescription for what happens when a family, in a family situation, when a man dies and leaves a widow without a child. It is that man's family's responsibility, if they have a brother, to marry that woman and to try to have a family with her, to continue the family line. And that's actually for the, for the good of the wife as well. She has a family to care for her. Now, um, what's going on here is, in this case, this Mr. Faceless Nameless has two widows to care for. Naomi, the old one, you know, who's never going to have a kid, most likely she's too old, and another young one who's a Moabite, a foreigner. And when he puts all this together, oh, wait, I've got two widows and the land, and one of them a young foreigner, he backs out. I don't want to do this. He uh, doesn't want to assume the responsibility anymore. And uh, what we see instead is that Boaz is willing to. Now, it's quite possible, likely, almost certain, that some of you are, if not bothered, at least offended by uh, this idea, especially of acquiring Ruth, the language of the text here. Um, And so I need to talk about it. And I will, but I want to talk about it in this way in particular. Uh, First of all, remember, Ruth proposed. She wants this. At least it seems she does. She's going along with it. Um, But also, behind all this, behind all this legal prescription, is a fundamental reality that we can't escape, which is this. God cares deeply for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. Those four, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. Those four show up in the Old Testament over and over and over and over and over and over. I don't know how many times. I'm going to guess over 100. God cares for them more than anyone else does and calls his people to care for them over and over. And it's for reasons of his care for them that he gives laws like this to protect them and to provide for them. What we're seeing here is God's heart for the weak and vulnerable. We don't see the the nearest redeemer's heart. He does not care. He wants the land. He does not want to care for these women. So he backs out. But, but Boaz does. He cares. And uh, because he cares, and because he actually legitimately cares for Ruth and loves Ruth, he gladly uh, takes the responsibility. And in verse 7, the case is closed. They confirm the transaction. They pass the sandal. Um, they, they make sure all the witnesses saw this. And then what happens is the celebration begins. It's a little bit like a wedding. 
you, 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 if you haven't been to a wedding, you're going to be going to a lot of them in the next seven or eight years of your life. So listen carefully. Um, there are legal things that happen before the wedding and during the wedding. And then after the wedding, you can't escape it. There are legal things that happen. You have to go get a marriage certificate before I will even think about marrying you. Just can't do it. You've got to bring it to the wedding. After you've done all the vows stuff, I literally will, you know, you don't have to ask me to do your wedding. You can ask somebody else. It doesn't matter who you ask, though. They will have to say this. By the authority invested in me, and I will say Father, Son, Spirit, because I'm a churchman, but also by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, because they have legal authority in this state for weddings and deaths and births, uh, I now pronounce you to be husband and wife. And then everyone wants to clap and say, no, it's not time to clap yet. Uh, now I present to you Mr. and Mrs. Now, now, and then everyone can clap and the celebration begins. Uh, and you know what? The legal stuff's not over then either. I've got to go back and sign that certificate or you're actually not legally married. All of which is to say, even in the midst of, mo- of the most wonderful, loving transactions, there are legal implications and aspects. And that's what's going on here. It's possible you can look at this and say, I, I really don't like this. It's legal mumble. It's like faceless, nameless. I don't like it. It, it, it. it just makes me really uncomfortable that I don't have the right to do, be, whatever I want at all times. And uh, I get that. I understand. But I want to boil it down to this. What we see here is God's heart for the weak and vulnerable. Do you care for the weak and vulnerable? Do you even notice them? Do you have a widow in your family? Do you love your widowed grandmother or great-grandmother as well as you should? All I'm doing is calling attention to the fact that you may want to be careful at casting a stone at God for his care of the vulnerable when we tend to not care for them very well. We actually don't even notice them very often. But God cares greatly for them. And what are we doing to help them and serve them? And as I brought up a moment ago, just because something's legal doesn't mean it's not loving. The law calls for love here. That's what we see happening in this next aspect, in this next aspect of redemption. We've seen the legal aspect. Let's look at the loving aspect. Uh, No doubt, almost all of you, at least some of you, some of you wish we had more detail. You want to know things like, I don't know, in chapter two, were there long sideways glances between Boaz and her? Um, was Boaz bachelor material? You know, a little peppered gray because he's older, but you know, what's his story? Um, did she really love him? How big was the ring? Um, these are the kind of things that some of you want to know. And the text gives us nothing, absolutely nothing about this. All we know, well, we've done quite a bit, though, is that she willingly proposed to him, courageously, bravely, and uh, as I talked about some last week, I mean, she really sort of gives it to him. She's not afraid or intimidated at all. And that he is very grateful. The text makes a big deal about it. He is, very, he is bold over that uh, she would choose him and want him instead of others. And he's so uh, both uh, blown away in gratitude, but also so aware of his obligation to Naomi, the mother-in-law, that he says, I'm going to deal with this right now. And by the next day, he's in court to take care of this. But what else do we know about the nature of the love that we see here and the redemption that we see here? Uh, One, uh, I think it's really important that we notice in this text 
that, not, that Boaz is not doing any of this because he needs to. Boaz isn't marrying Ruth or taking her land because he needs to. He's a man of wealth and character, uh, full of blessing. We saw that in chapter 2. But he is not needy. Uh, if, he, if he wanted her, if he needed her as an unprotected alien, which is what she was, he could have had her any number of different ways. He could have taken her any number of different ways, which would have all been awful. And, and uh, if not illegal, at least immoral. But he did not need her. Instead, and this is love, he wanted her. He wanted her. And that's a very important, different distinction. Uh, they needed him. They needed him because they were hanging on by a thread. Uh, financially and otherwise. But he didn't need her. Instead, though, as a man marked by God's love, God's self-giving love, he was glad to love her. This is why that's an important distinction, and I'll make it applicable to you right here, right now. There's this awful mistaken notion that God created people and goes out and redeems us and brings us to himself because he needs us. And that is wrong. That is awfully wrong, actually. Um, the picture's Bible of the God, the Bible's picture of God is, is of a being, threefold, Father, Son, and Spirit, who has never, ever had lack. Never. What was God doing before he created the world? Enjoying fellowship and love between Father, Son, and Spirit. God has never been needy or lonely. He did not create people because he needed something. And thank goodness that's the case. Because you, you go read other mythologies or other religions. Needy deities have a life-sucking love. They make demands. They require. They want from you. They, it's a love that sucks that's never pleased. But a God who is eternally rich in himself with love has a love that gives. The, the, the Bible's God is a God whose love and, and fullness is so rich that it flows out of him. He creates out of an abundance of love. His is a love that gives. He doesn't need us. He wants us. And that's altogether better and different. I hope you understand that. It's important. And it's very different. And it's hard. Be careful you don't read yourself back up. uh, Yourself and your experiences back into him. It's really hard for us to distinguish as individuals, uh, as we when we like someone or love someone, the difference between need and want. It really is. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But God, He wants his people. He doesn't need them. And that's really that's really lovely. Uh, Second, uh, it's costly. Mr. Uh, Faceless, nameless. He balks at the cost. Willing to pay the money for the land, caring for two women, two widows, for their whole lives? I don't think so. Especially these women. They've suffered. They've got experiences. They've got pain. They've got sorrow. Uh, Moreover, there's risk involved. He's under obligation uh, to to marry Ruth and, uh, and have a son, if possible, a child. And if successful, uh, then that child becomes the redeemer. 
You're thinking, oh, I don't care. Well, you should actually because that redeemer then owns the property. He's a nearer redeemer than this guy. And so, in other words, uh, if this guy does what he's supposed to, he can lose everything. If he's in it for the money, if he does what he's supposed to, he could lose it all. And because he's in it for the money, he balks. Because he's in it for the gain, he doesn't want to do it. But Boaz knows all this. And because he cares for Naomi, because he's a man of character, because he genuinely loves Ruth, he doesn't care. I'll pay whatever it takes to marry that woman. And I'll do whatever, it, whatever is required of me and risk anything to care for her. Because that's what I'm called to do, and I want to do it. So of his own resources, he does what's necessary to care for these women and to marry Ruth. In other words, what we have in Boaz and what we have in God is a love that is freely chosen, not out of need. It's freely chosen, but costly given. It costs God to give his love. And the last thing we see about this love is that it binds and it belongs. Uh, you know, the celebration begins in verse 13. Uh, Boaz takes Ruth and marries her, and she becomes his wife. And uh, everything the Bible says about Marriage comes into play here. Two become one inseparably, uh, one in God's sight forever. And uh, because they're one, everything that's hers is his, and everything that's his is hers. He inherits all her hurt. He's married a widow with pains. He's married uh, an outsider, a Moabite. I'm married an outsider. It means my wife will never, ever complete a crossword puzzle. Uh, <laughs> no, understand any pop references whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> it's just really hilarious. Uh, some of the things that you don't know you're getting into uh, when you marry someone from another place. Um, but there are other aspects uh, of her being an outsider, the, the cost of which he won't understand uh, for a long time. But he doesn't care because he loves her. And, uh, and now... Because of their marriage, she's an insider. She's an Israelite. She has all the full rights and responsibilities as the rest of them. She's in forever. The, the best example I can give modern day right here for us about what this looks like and what this means is one that almost none of you can understand firsthand, but one of you or two of you in a, in a room can. So with apologies to one or two of you who will immediately... Um, be figured out as soon as I begin this illustration. Uh, perhaps the best modern day um, equivalent to what's going on here is an international adoption. So I've had a number of uh, family. Why am I emotional about this? It's not me. Um, so lots of family and friends have adopted from abroad, and lots of them adopted from here, and. Uh, you know, a significant part of the process of adopting a child from here or abroad uh, is financial and legal. Uh, in fact, I, uh, I had to run home last week after a large group and fill out a long reference form, <laughs> a legal document, for a friend who's trying to adopt. And um, the average uh, cost for an international adoption is somewhere between thirty dollars and $40,000. And, uh, you know, while this is going on, a family's here taking the two to three years it takes to accrue all the money and fill out all the paperwork because the legal stuff is there to protect the child, right? You want to make sure you're a good parent, you're fit for this. Meanwhile, there's some some child in another country in an orphanage, uh, parentless or who doesn't know their parents, who's heard someone wants to adopt them. And they have hope, right? Maybe they've met in some visit. 
and uh, they could not care less about the legal stuff or the financial stuff, right? They don't care. They don't even know what's going on. They just want to know, will this person who promised to come and get me actually come and get me and get me out of this place? Will they come and rescue me? And eventually the day comes when uh, this family who's worked really hard legally and financially comes and finally has this child and takes them home and brings them into their family, and they belong forever. Now, when that child is adopted at age three or four, what do they understand of the legal and financial process? None. And should they care? No, not really. When they're 13 or 14, they may become aware of it and wonder, maybe in their teenage sulkiness. Um, You know when that kid will probably actually understand what their parents went through in order to acquire them? Um, Maybe when they're 30. I mean, when you're an adult, when you're like raising your own kids and you're like, wait a minute, I'm 30 now. It was about this time when my parents were 30 in a life like this, filled with crazy kids that they decided to raise $40,000 and go through these two years of trouble to come and get me. Uh, And then maybe it'll begin to sink in. Like maybe all that legal stuff actually is loving. Maybe, Maybe there's something in that. And um, I should look into that a little bit more because it shows me a little more deeply what, what it looked like for them to love me and bring me in. Here's a question for you. What did it cost God to rescue you and bring you back? What did it cost him? It's a lot more than two years of paperwork and $30,000. It wasn't gold or silver, not with perishable things like gold or silver, but the most precious thing of all, the precious blood of Christ. That's what it took to bring you back. Nothing less than God's own Son, His life and death. That's how great our need was. That's how great His love is. And uh, that, that means this, this very idea of redemption and His legal aspects is loving, friends. And there's other legal things involved in God's loving you that are also very loving, very legal words like justification. That's a legal word. It's a beautiful word. Adoption. These are all things that God has done to you and for you if you're his child. And they're really lovely. And uh, it's like reading the legal paperwork. Uh, Maybe as you dig into it, you'll learn something about how much God loves you. And I I would suggest maybe you look into that. What does it mean that God justified me, declared me right, and adopted me, gives me all the rights and responsibilities of his own son? Like that 30-year-old adoptee, it's probably worth your time to poke around here in some of the legal language God uses to describe how he loves you. Oh boy, it's 35. I'm going to do this last one in four or five minutes. This keeps happening. Uh, Okay, legal, loving, life-giving. Last one. What we've seen so far in this beautiful little four-act play is two people have given their lives, right? Ruth and Boaz have given themselves deeply and sacrificially. And uh, it has resulted in, in, uh, in Naomi, uh, in her resurrection. She's, she's found it to be life-giving. Actually, you see this in a couple different ways. Uh, love actually produces life in a couple different ways. Two people love each other. You typically have a kid. That happens in verse 16. Um, and uh, in verse 16, 17, we see this child in Naomi's lap. And uh, the women are celebrating because Naomi is alive. This empty, bitter woman is now pleasant and full once again. She is found that sacrificial love, like the love that Ruth and Boaz has, produces life and hope and love. And she has benefited from it. 
And we see that in the life-giving son in verse 14 and 15. This little boy, this little boy is now the redeemer. That's what the people, the old women say. They're right. Um, he's the one who grants her joy right now. Uh, she's sort of the redeemer at this moment, granting Naomi life and joy. But also, as uh, she grows into old widowhood, um, he's going to be the person that cares for her, who works for her, who watches out for her, who loves her. Because, so let me just be clear, no one else is going to be able to do it. No one else is going to do it. He's going to be the person that cares for her. And uh, that's how this story closes. But if you notice, and you did, there's an epilogue to this four-act play, and it goes on. And it points out another son, that this, this child points all the way to David. And if you pick up uh, the story in the New Testament in Matthew 1, we read right along and find Ruth smack dab in the middle of, of Jesus' genealogy. That Jesus is a descendant of David, which means he's a descendant of Ruth. And this points us all to our need for the life-giving son. It's possible you've read this story and thought, that's a really, and it depends on where you're coming from, Either a very quaint, cute, quaint uh, little tale about how people love each other and good things happen. Or some of you may be offended, like this is a patriarchal, woman-hating text about how men save women and women need to have babies to have a life. And uh, if you're offended by those kind of things, I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, But frankly, what this text tells us should be equally offensive for everyone. It actually tells us that not a single one of us, not a single one of us, can get ourselves out of the cycle of death that we're in without the life-giving son. Every single one of us needs a baby to be born from the outside, further outside than a Moabite, from the outside, way outside, love in the flesh to come and live and die for us in the person of Jesus, or we will not get out of the cycle of death. That's what the Bible says over and over. If you're going to find redemption, if you're going to get out of the cycle of death, it's going to be because God himself loves you so much, doesn't need you, loves you so much, wants you so much, he will put himself in the cycle of death and bring you out, rescue you at his own cost. And and I realize some of you may also be thinking like, well, that's okay. That's not quaint. I sorry about the quaint part, sir. Um, That's not quaint, but maybe I don't need that. And and let me argue that you do. And I want to do this in one simple way. I want you to consider the way you love. And the way you spend your life. Are you? Are you early Naomi? Bitter? Bitter at what God's depriving you of. If you love, is it a suck? Is it a want? Is it a... God, you haven't given me enough. God, I understand. I still trust you. I still, I still believe in you, but you're just not giving me what I really need. Are you bitter? Are you wanting? Are you demanding in your love? I need more from you. I need more from you, and I need more from you. And I need a, God, I need you to give me a person. I need you to give me success. Is that the way you love others? I need. That's Naomi. And she's bitter. And maybe your bitterness is really quiet, but maybe it's there. Or do you have the love of Ruth and Boaz, which so been, they've been so permeated by God's own self-giving love that they just give themselves away. It may kill me. Literally, I may, I may give away everything I have, 
but I love you and I am willing to give you everything I have for your own good. That is Ruth and that is Boaz. They give and they give and they give. And it's because they understand God's love. That's the way he loves and he gives and he gives himself away. Friends, this is the kind of love that we're supposed to have. And this is the kind of love that breaks through our own cycles of death when we understand Jesus' love and how he comes into the circle of death for us, the cycle of death, and gives himself. And when we take that, that person of Jesus and we embrace him and we rest in his love, we, we become like him. We start loving people like he does. And it brings life, and it brings hope, and it makes community, and it's beautiful. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great kindness and your great love. And uh, Lord, despite the cost...